0: Okay, so if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7, we're back in the book of Mark this morning. The last time that we left off from the book of Mark several weeks ago, We've been, we kind of stopped and paused like right around the middle of the book of Mark to talk about sin, but before that, we, we, we dealt with the whole beginning part of the book of Mark, and, or chapter 7, and, um, and so we're going to be dealing with the latter half of chapter 7 today, so... Let's start in verse 24. I'll read. Please listen. This is some of the most shocking words that Jesus uses in the book of Mark. And then we'll pray. Verse 24. And from there he rose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered into a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table get the children's crumbs and he said this to her he said this to her for this statement you may go your way the demon has left your daughter and she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone then he returned from the region of tyre and went through sidon to the sea through the sea of galilee the region of the decapolis and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hands on him, and then Jesus took him aside, stuck his fingers into his ears, and spit on the ground, touched his tongue, and looking to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Paphetha, that is, be opened. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them not to tell anyone, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word and how compassionate you are. I pray that this morning that you would speak to people right where they're at, right where they need to hear. If it's a, some of us in here just sometimes need a sharp rebuke, something that stings a little bit something that we have to wrestle through to make sense of. Some of us need just for you to open our ears, to open our eyes, to loosen our tongue, to praise you. Wherever we're at, God, I trust that you will meet us. You are a creator. You know exactly what we need. You are a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a prince of peace. For you speak to us through your word this morning. And we thank you, God, for it. I pray that you would um, use me and use my mouth. I'm just so humbled by this text. I pray that you would bring us all into faith and trusting more and believing more in your sovereignty and in your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in chapter seven in the book of Mark. Now we've been in the book of Mark. We started the book of Mark back in January when we started the church. And we've been saying that Mark, which is the first of the gospels to be written, was written... Uh, to write down the story of the real Jesus. And we've been looking at two things as we've been looking at Mark. We've been looking at Jesus' character, um, who Jesus was, who he was and his character, but we've also been looking at why Jesus came, his mission. What was his mission here on earth? In chapter 7, which we began uh, several months or a couple months ago, chapter 7 began in a very, very shocking way. Jesus has had a run-in with the most religious, devout, holy men at the time. At this time, these men come to Jesus and they're asking, hey, why don't your disciples eat with washed hands? Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? These were the most devout men in Jewish society. These men memorized the Old Testament. I mean, had the whole Testament memorized. Men who followed the law down to the comma or the jot in the tittle. Men who wanted to be so holy that they had holy hand washings and they had holy couches and they had holy meals. They also prayed these super long prayers out in public And they fasted weekly. And you know what Jesus says to these men when Jesus has a run-in with them? He says to them, he tells them from their very own Bibles. This, in verse 6, in chapter 7. Well did Isaiah, and Isaiah is an Old Testament Jewish prophet. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, speaking to the religious leaders, you hypocrites, you actors, you fakes. This is what he's saying to all the religious leaders. You fakes. As it is written, people, these people, honor me with their lips. Outwardly, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The men that everyone in society thought were in with God. Everyone in society at this time thought these men were in and tight with God, were neither in with God nor close to God. They were actually, according to Jesus, very far off from God. And this is what this means, that these guys, the most devout and committed, are far from God. What hope do you and I have? If the most devout people in Jesus' day were far from God, what hope do you and I have then? If the spiritual or religious guys who devoted their life to religious duty and service, if they were not even close to God, then how can anyone draw near to God? I mean, what is it going to take to draw near to God if these men couldn't make it? I mean, how do I approach God? Because in a, in a sense, it's sort of like me. I mean, I've devoted my life to the, the pastorate, or my dad calls it, you're, Dave, you're a man of the cloth. I think he's watched like Nacho Libre too many times. It's like, Dave, you're a man of the cloth. I'm like, Dad, I'm, I'm not a man of the cloth. Um, I wear denim. He's like, no, um, you're, you're like a man of the cloth, Dave. You're, I, I've kind of done this. I've like committed my life to, I guess, religious duty and serving God, if you will. I mean, what hope do I have then? If these men who were way more religious and spiritual outwardly than I, uh, I am ever or ever could be i mean this isn't good news for me it's necessary it's probably not good for news for you either because if you're expecting me to lead you in some way and i'm far from god you're really messed up and so i think we all need to understand what is jesus saying here how do you draw near to god how do you approach god and relate to god see that's the question that that's hanging here in the middle of chapter 7 in the middle of chapter 7, the, f- the first part of chapter 7 is Jesus calls everyone who everyone thinks is in with God out. Hey, everyone's out. Your hearts are wicked. Your, your religious services are, are bogus. Everyone's out. In the middle of the chapter, you're going, then who's in? How do you even approach God? How do you relate to God? If all these men who, are, who we think are so tight with God, who then can draw near to God? How do I, how do you relate and approach God? And that's the question hanging here in the middle of chapter 7. And we're shown how in these last two episodes in chapter 7. But we're shown in the most, in Mark fashion, we're shown in the most scandalous way possible. Because Jesus leaves the Jewish area where he has been, been doing all his miracles and ministry and teaching. And he moves into Gentile territory. And as we follow Jesus into Gentile territory, into Gentile land, we will learn how we relate to God and how God has related to us. How we can relate to and approach God. And how God has related to and how God has approached us. So the first movement that we'll see is how do, then, how do we approach God? How do we relate to God right now? But then how has God related to us? And how has God approached us? So the first movement takes place in this region called Tyre. Now Tyre was a pagan and Gentile Region uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus has been doing the bulk of his ministry. Josephus, a um uh, a first century Jewish historian, said of the of the inhabitants of Tyre that they were notoriously our bitterest enemies, he said. Tyre, the region of Tyre, the people who lived in Tyre, were notoriously the Jews' most bitter enemies. Tyre, it was called Phoenicia in the Old Testament, is home to many of Israel's past enemies. And though the Jews were surrounded by many pagans at the time being occupied by Rome, Tyre represented the most extreme expression of paganism that a Jew could expect to encounter. And it seems that Jesus goes to Tyre to find rest, which just sounds really funny, because it's so bad, the ministry is so overwhelming, he has to go to the craziest, gnarliest, most pagan place to find rest. It would be as if Mother Teresa, before she died in 97, was tired of ministering to lepers in Calcutta and went to Vegas for a vacation. <laughs> and if you read that in the paper, you'd be like, that's really, really weird. Why would she do that? Jesus is going to the most pagan place in that area to find rest. It seems a little bit strange. And it says that he entered into a house entire, and he did not want anyone to know that he was in this house. So he sneaks into this house and hoping that nobody finds out. But it seems that the only impossible thing for Jesus to do in his ministry, the only thing that's possible, impossible for him to do is hide. I mean, he can walk on water, he can calm storms, he can raise the dead, but he can't hide. He's not good at hiding, which is, I think is a really beautiful thing. And this woman finds out that he's in this home, and she bursts in. And apparently she loves the fact that Jesus can't hide either, because she has this demon-possessed daughter. Mark calls this daughter As having an unclean spirit. And that connects you to the first part of chapter 7. When Jesus is talking about what makes you clean and unclean. And Mark is painting the picture here. Hey, this woman is very unclean. Not only is she a Jew. Not only is she a woman. Not only is she unclean spiritually, religiously, socially. But she has a daughter with a demon. She is very, very unclean. And And what's being highlighted is that this woman is a Gentile. A Syrophoenician Gentile who hails from a city that the Old Testament deemed as a wealthy and godless oppressor of Israel. So if you read the Old Testament, if you know about the Old Testament, or if you lived this time, somebody who hailed from, from uh, Syrophoenicia would be someone who everyone looks at as the wealthy and godless oppressor of Israel. And she's unclean and unfit in every way possible to approach Jesus. And she should not approach a Jewish rabbi at all. She has no standing morally to approach Jesus. She has no standing spiritually or ritually to approach Christ. No right, no standing. And she knew that. The thing is this. She was close enough, living in Tyre, she was close enough to Jewish culture that she knew that she couldn't approach a Jewish rabbi, especially one as powerful and as popular as Jesus. But she didn't care because she was a mom, and moms are crazy, (laughs) especially when it comes to their kids her daughter had a demon, and there's nothing that can stop this mom. Um, this last week when um, I told you I was on vacation, I was flipping through the channel because I don't have TV at home, so that was a really fun thing to do on vacation when I was sick, but that's a whole different story. I was flipping through it, and I caught like the, the, the last part of that movie, um, that movie about football and Sandra Bullock's in it, and it's a movie, thank you, and um, <clears throat> that movie Blindside. And remember when, at the, if you've seen that movie, if you haven't, I'm going to ruin it, but you should have seen it by now. And uh, at the end, she goes to that, that one guy's house in and, and, and the, um, the projects, and she's like, I'm packing heat, and, and I have a gun in my purse, and I always carry it, and it's always loaded, and I will, I'll pop you, like, if you even get close. Like, and she's not. She's totally lying. But She's going to like, super extreme measures because she's, like, a mama bear, and she's guarding her, her son in that movie. That's kind of like here, like, she, this girl knows she shouldn't be approaching Jesus. Not that Jesus is like, gangster, but, I mean, he's Jewish, and she's not. And she knows I should not be approaching Jesus at all. I have no standing to be approaching Jesus. But my daughter has a demon, and I will do whatever it takes, and I will not take no for an answer. So she barges in, goes right in front of Jesus, and begins to beg him to heal his, her daughter. Now, Mark's description of this woman is that she's a Greek, a Syrophoenician, and that she, and this must, ha, must be seen for us religiously, not simply nationally. Mark is saying that she was a pagan. That, that, that's what Mark's getting at here. This woman is a pagan. And by going to Jesus, she's breaking every single rule the religious rules and the social rules of the day. I mean, let's not kid ourselves here. She was a woman. And though Jesus shows no partiality, to women but does more than any other religious figure to truly liberate women this was the first century and her being a woman approaching a Jewish rabbi was no small deal she approaches him as a Greek Gentile from the infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia I mean even Levi the tax collector probably like raised his eyebrows at this woman was like oh my gosh no she didn't she did not just break in here and touch Jesus' feet. There's no way. I mean, we've, we've heard of other stories like this, but they've always been Jewish stories. This is a Gentile story. A Gentile breaks in who's as unclean as any Jewish follower, but she's not Jewish. She's Gentile. And she breaks in, and she falls at his feet. And she bursts in where Jesus is staying, falls down, and begs, please heal my daughter. Now look at Jesus' response. Brace yourselves. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. I mean, that seems kind of rude. If you're reading that at home, you're like, whoa. I mean, this is not the Jesus I think we've read before in chapters 1 through beginning of 7. He's a little bit more compassionate. He just called a woman a dog. That's not a good thing. I mean, today, we live in a very pet-loving city. Everyone loves dogs here. Like, if we said dog, you're like, oh, dogs, they're cute. And we, do, we go out of our way to serve dogs. There's, like, a pet hotel. There's, like, several. There's one of them that I actually wanted to stay at before I realized it was a pet hotel. <laughs> I was like, Ash, I want to stay at that hotel. She goes, Dave, there's a hotel for dogs. I mean, like, pets. Anyway. So, th- like, this last week, um, I was, when it was really hot, I was outside um, this restaurant. And there's this dog in the shade. And it was, the breeze was blowing, but he's laying down. And the waiter comes out and brings a giant bowl of iced water for a dog, and I get tap water that I have to go get myself, and he's sitting there, just looks at me, he's like, yeah, I know, I got a mate, and you have to get your own water, and they bring it to me, and they pick up after me, and they love me, and you're a human, but, but at this time, this was even, but today, even if you're like, even if you're going, okay, dogs are loved here, all right, but to call you a dog, is not a good thing. I mean, even, even outside of hip-hop world, it's not that good of a thing, and especially the way Jesus uses it here is not a good thing, because Jesus says this. He says, why would I help you, in a sense? The children must be fed first. Why would I take their food and throw it to the dogs? That's what he's saying, and this is even more sharp of a statement, because in the first century, Jews didn't look at dogs as a clean thing at all. Dogs were always wild, scavengers that eat dead animals that made the animals unclean. They weren't kept as pets. They were kept outside of the city. Actually, in Revelation chapter 22, 15, dogs are used to describe a person who's outside of the community of grace, idolaters, and whose life is based on a lie. It says outside are the dogs. They're not even inside the community of God. They're outside. Gentiles were called dogs in Jesus' day. So Jesus saying this stings a little bit. And I can't really remove its sting. It's supposed to sting. It's supposed to, to like us to go, wait, what, what is he saying there? Why would he call this woman that? What's going on here? And again, I can't really remove its sting, but I want to explain to you what happens and how she responds because it's beautiful. The way that Jesus answer her, answers her is, is by saying this, let the children be fed first. That word is a very important. It says, let the children be fed first. Jesus, Jesus doesn't outright deny the woman's request to heal her child, but he says this, the children must be fed first. It's like, wait, mom, there's a plan here. There's hope, but you have to wait your turn. You can't skip ahead. The children must be fed first and then the household pets and the, and the word that jesus used is a scavenger dog it's actually a, a diminutive word meaning little dogs like puppies like jesus said why would we feed the household dogs but even then jesus is saying there is an order here there is a plan paul writes in romans chapter one for i am not ashamed of the gospel it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes but listen to the jew first and also to the greek The plan of God. There is a plan of God. We cannot, as we read the Bible, strip Jesus of his Jewishness. He came as a Jew, a male born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, came into a context. There was a plan. He began his ministry around Galilee, went to Jerusalem to be betrayed and crucified outside the city walls. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. There was a plan there. To the Jew first, and then the gospel goes out to the whole world. But look at this persistent mom and how she answers Jesus. She says, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The best answer ever. Like the most witty answer. Like she goes, Yes, but can I get a crumb? The thing is this she's like, I'm not asking for a meal. I'm not even asking to be a child. I just want a crumb. That's all I want. Surely, I mean, kids are messy. If you've been around kids, I mean, I'm messy when I eat. I mean, there's crumbs everywhere when I eat. Last night, we are watching the game at a friend's house, about the bottom of the eighth inning. He calls in the dog to look up all of my chip crumbs that I dropped everywhere as I'm eating chips. I mean, I'm messy. Kids are messy. They drop crumbs, and she's a mom. She knows this. She's like, Kids drop crumbs. I just want a crumb. And here's the point. And this is what she's saying. She accepts Jesus' premise. She accepts what Jesus is saying. She says she enters into Jesus' parable, his parable world, and answers him from his parable world. She's the first person in the book of Mark to get a parable. I mean, no one gets parables when Jesus talks about them. Even though they're supposed to explain things, nobody gets them. Everyone's clueless whenever Jesus talks in parables. He describes, a, he, he says a parable, his disciples pull him aside and they're like, what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? The seed and the sower, what, what does that mean? And Jesus is like, um, seed, m- my word, I'm the sower, how hard is that? Like, I don't get it. We don't understand. And this woman gets it right away. She's like, yes, but even the kids get crumbs. This woman is not offended. This is key. This woman is not offended or put off by Jesus' statement. It wasn't like, wait, are you calling me a dog? You notice she didn't say that? Like, are you, Jesus, are you calling me a dog? Jesus, the loving Messiah, calling me a dog. Aren't you supposed to be like the Savior of the world? I'm over you. And I'm getting a lawyer. So you better lawyer up, sucker, because I'm coming after you. I mean, she doesn't do that. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't go, you know, I deserve this. She didn't show offense by what Jesus said. Rather, her response shows an understanding and acceptance of Israel's privilege. She says this, I get it. I'm not Jewish, and you're a Jewish Messiah. I'm a Gentile. I understand that. I accept the uniqueness of God's revelation to Israel. I don't have the Bible. I don't obey the Ten Commandments. But can I get a crumb? Surely, there's enough to go around. Surely, I can get just a little crumb. I mean, do you see how she didn't stand on her rights? She didn't stand on her rights. Normally, when we fight, when you get into any argument or fight, or you contend, even like this this woman's doing here, you're either fighting because you think you're right, or you're fighting to defend your rights, always. Any fight you, you would get into. I mean, can you imagine if this woman said, it's your fault? Jesus. I mean, if you're truly God as you claim to be, it's your fault for making me a Syrophoenician and not a Jew. Like, I always wanted to be a Jew. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be Jewish. But I'm not Jewish because you didn't make me Jewish. It's not my fault I'm not Jewish. It's your fault that I'm not Jewish. Creator, I'm out. She could totally have said that. And maybe you've even used that complaint to God. See, God, you made me like this. You've given me these These vices, these temptations, these things that I deal with. It's not my fault. I'm a victim. It's your fault. She could have said that. In fact, probably you and I say the same thing when we pray or argue with God. It wasn't like that at all. You want to know why she didn't answer that way? Because this woman was the first in the book of Mark to get the gospel. She understood the gospel. She came to Jesus and said, I am not coming Listen, I'm not coming on the basis of my goodness. I'm approaching you on the basis of yours. I'm not coming before you because I'm good, because I obey, because I do all these things. I'm coming because you're good and you're powerful. Here's the gospel, everybody. Listen, please understand, this is the gospel. This is what we exist for. This is what we proclaim and preach and try to embody in this city you're wicked. Welcome to church. That's kind of the beginning of it. You're wicked, you're tyrannical, you're rebellious, you're an idolater, and you're more wicked than you can ever even imagine. But the other half of the gospel is that you're radically loved. You're loved more than you can ever, ever, ever dream possible. See, most people want to focus on the I'm loved part, they, want to talk about, they don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about unworthiness. They don't want to talk about their natural proclivity to be bent on rebellion. They don't want to talk about their rebellious heart. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about how God loves us. But that's only half of the gospel. This woman was not too proud to accept what the gospel says about her unworthiness. Jesus, in a very striking way, started off like this. You're not worthy. And she said, you're right, I'm not. But can I get a crumb? See, no one likes to be called hypocrites. No one likes to be called an evil generation, or a brood of vipers, or a whitewashed tomb, or fox, or a dog. Yet Jesus uses all of this language in the New Testament, mostly reserved for religious leaders. And when we hear something like that, like, hey, you're a whitewashed tomb, you're a hypocrite, you're evil, you're a you're a spawn of Satan. You're a whitewashed tomb. You're a dog. When we hear something like that, our pride kicks in, and it keeps us from ever asking God for help. Like, fine, I'm done with God then. If I'm that, I'm done with God. And what happens is we turn to gods of our own making who will not offend us or, or tell us we're wrong. Actually, we turn to gods that will tell us everything's all right, just the way that we are. And a God that you make up can't ever change you. It can't save you, it can't rescue you, and it can't challenge you. And this woman, she gets it. She gets, before the religious leaders ever get it, before the disciples ever get it, this Gentile woman gets the fact of what Jesus says about her, and then he, and she asks for his mercy. And then Jesus responds like this, verse 29, what an answer. For that you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. I mean, what an amazing answer. For that answer, for that sort of faith, you can go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I mean, you see what happens? The universal plan of God has broken in because of this woman's faith. God's plan to redeem the whole world, not just the Jewish world, but the whole world. From a socio religious perspective, Jesus' visit to Tyre universalizes the concept of Messiah in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion in a way that's entirely unprecedented in Judaism. Jesus says, anyone who believes can come. But the only way to come is through me. See how the claim of Jesus is totally inclusive but totally exclusive at the same time? It's inclusive that anyone can come, but it's exclusive that it only, you can only go through Christ. So anyone can go. No matter what you have believed in your past, the way you were born, who you are, anyone can come, but it's through Christ. It's not that, see, what, what happens here, in and, and all of chapter 7, if you snap, step back and look at the whole thing, it's not that the Jews are in and the Gentiles are out, or the religious are in and the pagan are out. What happens in chapter 7 is that the humble are in and the proud are out. That's how we relate and approach God. The humble are in, and the proud are out. That's the language of the kingdom of God. The humble, those who humble themselves before God and say, God, you're right, and I humble myself before you. See, in the kingdom of God, dogs become kids. Frogs become princes. Outsiders become insiders. Martin Luther said of this passage, she asks, she asks for no more than her due. She took Christ at his own words. Then he treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. That is the gospel. We see it right in the middle of chapter 7, but this chapter ends with a story even more shocking than how this woman related to Jesus. We get to see how he has, God has related to us. Because in it, the second story, the second movement in the story is how God is related to us. It's Jesus now goes from Tyre, he goes to the Decapolis, another Gentile territory. The commotion of Jesus is everywhere all over again, everyone's around him. And this crowd begins to swarm. And the crowd of friends bring this man who is deaf and mute. And again, they beg Jesus to lay his hands on him. Then Jesus grabs this, this guy, he pulls him aside, away from the crowd, sticks, Jesus sticks his fingers in his ears. Just imagine this, picture it in your own head. Jesus pulls this guy aside, just goes, ears. Then he spits, takes a spit, puts it on his tongue. And he looks up to heaven and he says, I mean, what's going on with Jesus? This is very uncharacteristic of Jesus up to Mark, up to this point in Mark. I mean, it's like Jesus is like having a Messiah crisis or something. He's like over it. I'm over being a superhero. I'm over the crowds. I'm over not being able to escape. I'm going to start messing with people now. You're a dog. Fingers in your ears. This is going to be fun now. I'm just going to have some fun with this. He doesn't do that. That's not what's going on here. What is going on? The last section in chapter 7 seems like a v- very uncharacteristic of Jesus. But what Jesus is doing is this. This is huge. Jesus enters into this deaf and mute man's world to bring him back out. If you've ever seen the opening scene of the Passion of the Christ, if you've ever seen that movie, the opening scene, I mean, it just like destroys me every single time. And the opening scene, it, it starts in the garden, and the, 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 um, uh, the high priest's servants come, and, and the, the Roman guards come and arrest Jesus. And then Peter, like, revolt, pulls out a sword and chops off the high servant's priest's ear, and then immediately the movie now takes on what this guy who just got his ear lopped off what he's seeing and what he's hearing and what he's sensing and the movie just like starts getting at your gut and this guy just go his ear starts ringing and he sees the crowd of people all around and everyone's just going everywhere and just just ringing in his ear and his ear is gone and then he locks eyes with jesus and the compassion of christ like pierces his soul And he sees Jesus, and you and I see Jesus too, because we're kind of playing in that role, like our ear just got cut off too. And you see the compassion of Christ, and he looks at this guy, and he grabs his ear, and he puts it back on. And then this rush of like sound happens, and his, his hearing is restored again. And you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is about to get crucified, and he still has compassion over this man who's arresting him. This is exactly what's happening. This man, imagine from his world, he's deaf he's mute. He cannot communicate and he cannot hear. So all he sees is this clamor. All he sees is people all around Jesus and his friends are bringing him like this way and all this doing all this stuff to him. And he locks eyes with Jesus and it's chaotic and he can he can't make out words, he can't understand, he can't even say what he wants. His friends throw him in front of Christ. Jesus locks eyes with them and then he pulls him aside alone. This man's probably been a spectacle his whole life. When you try to talk when you're deaf, you can't really hear yourself and you can't learn how to speak right and properly. And people probably made fun of him his whole life. So Jesus pulls him away privately. And then he sticks his fingers in his ears. This man looks at Jesus and he's probably going, what is this man going to do? And all of a sudden he just feels Jesus' fingers go into his ears. What's happening? Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus is using sign language on him. Jesus enters into his world this man could not hear. So Jesus gets goes beyond verbal communication and he spoke to him in a language he can understand. He put his fingers in his ears and said, "I'm going to heal your ears." Then he spit and touched his tongue and he said, "I'm going to heal your tongue." Then he looked to heaven and he said, this is how it's going to happen. God is going to heal you. And then immediately, the rush of sound hits his ears, and his tongue is loosed, and he's able to speak and to hear again. Jesus enters into his world to bring him out. His sign language was, in a sense, an, act, an acted parable of Jesus's incarnation. Jesus coming down, entered into man's world of silence and spoken, the only language that you and I can understand. See, this is encapsulated in this pericope, in this story, is Jesus' entire mission. Coming down into our world to speak our language, to bring us out again. He enters our world to bring us out. It's exactly what he did with the Gentile woman. He does it here with this deaf man. He knows what we need. He is a good Savior. He knows what we need to hear and how we need to hear it. He knows how to deal with us. He knows how to save us. He knows how to, he does all things well. That's what his friends say at the end. He does all things well. All things. Like the Chilean miners who were so amazingly rescued this last week. God has descended down to bring us up. He didn't descend down to keep us company. He didn't descend down to go, oh, you guys are kind of trapped here. You know what? I'm going to hang out with you guys for a little while. He, he came down to bring us out. You have to understand that. Why Christ has descended, why Christ has touched our ears and touched our eyes and touched our tongue and touched our heart is to bring us out from the miry pit that we keep ourselves in. To bring us out of self centeredness into God centeredness. To bring us out of self fulfilling and self worship into God worship. He loosens our tongues that we can worship him. St. Augustine said in chapter one of Confessions, late I have loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late I have loved you, you have called me and, I, and have called out and have shattered my deafness. You have blazed forth with light and have put my blindness to flight. You have sent forth fragrance and have drawn in my breath and I pant after you. I have tasted you, and I hunger and thirst after you. You have touched me, and I have burned for your peace. When Christ touches us, when Christ saves us, when he opens our ears, and opens our eyes, and loosens our tongue, is that we could know him, that we could worship him, that he would be the center of our life. Have you placed your hope in Jesus? Have you placed your hope in Jesus? Have you believed in Christ? Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe that what that woman believed? Do you believe that you could enter in and accept Jesus at, at his terms? Do you accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness and your deafness, but also what Jesus has done to, to bring you out from there because of his great love for you? Have you humbled yourself? Have you been too prideful to pray or to come up here and kneel before God. Have you been too prideful to come up and ask for prayer from the prayer team? I mean, have you been too prideful to come up and ask for prayer from the prayer team? Would you humble yourself before God and take communion? The language of God, the way that we enter in to what God has, is through humility. Have you come to Christ and said, "In humility"? Please save me, God. Open my ears, loosen my tongue, that I may sing thy praise. Remember, it's the humble that are in and the proud that are out. Charles Wesley wrote famous hymn, Hear him, you deaf, and praise him, you dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. You blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, you lame, for joy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for descending down to open up our eyes, to open up our ears. And Lord, I humble myself before you, and I I know that I'm way more wicked than I ever could ever even imagine. And I know there are people here that that they might even grasp their own wickedness or their own um, potential for wickedness. And I pray that you would show us not only that, but your great Great love for us. That you took on our world and took on our sin. That we can have your life. I pray now, Lord, only you can do this. I can't, I can't shout loud enough or talk long enough to open people's ears. You have to stick your finger in their ears and open their ears. And I pray, God, that you would. I pray that you would open the ears of people today to hear your word for the very first time, to hear your voice for the very first time. And you would open the eyes of the blind that don't see who you really are and how great of a savior you are. I pray that, Lord, our lips would um, praise you, exalt you, that you would open our ears and then loosen our tongue right now to worship you. And we humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen.